What's going on, folks? Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day soon a true proletarian revolution. But until that day comes, I am your host, Josh, and I'd like to say thank you so much for stopping by. So for those of you who have been checking out the show for a while, you may know that right now, just kind of based on the noise difference between, you know, other episodes I post, that I am currently in my car driving to work. Now, I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, to some folks, they might not want to listen to some dude driving in his car talking about the shit that's on his mind. And I've been kind of insecure about that. But I've decided instead that I really have no other choice because I enjoy doing the podcast. I've been able to reach and connect with incredible people and folks have been reaching out and saying that they enjoy the show. So what I'm going to do is I am going to specify now this when I am driving in the car will now be referred to as our morning commute. This is the segment now going to be titled morning commute within defense of liberation so when you see morning commute in the title of an episode it is because i am driving in my car there is background noise there is less quality audio there is the chance that i might get in an accident that's what you're signed up for when you click on episodes titled morning commute so now that we know this going forward I'm not going to have to talk about it anymore, hopefully. Anyways, how we doing, folks? What's up? Um, so it's cold as balls outside. It's negative two degrees where I'm at. And uh, I have just a lot on my mind. I was listening to some music, and it just really wasn't hitting the spot. So I want to do a short little episode. Um, probably run about a half an hour, 45 minutes. <clears throat> just a heads up on a few different things. First and foremost... I just recorded last night with Elena from the Red Nation podcast. It was incredible. I really had such a great time. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was like, I was nervous. I'm always nervous to meet new people, especially someone as, you know, incredibly smart and and well-organized and experienced as Elena. Um, And uh, so, you know, the nerves were there, but it really genuinely was such a great and, and comfortable conversation. I'm very excited for you folks to hear that. That should be coming out tomorrow. Today is Sunday, uh, January 30th, uh, when I'm recording this and when this should be posted. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Also coming up next week, next Friday, I am set to record with John Potash, the author of um, uh, Drugs as Weapons Against Us um, and a book whose title I am brain farting on, but it is essentially the uh, war on Tupac and other black resistance and and revolutionaries, Um, both incredible books. I was able to find John Potash by listening to an episode that probably Canceled Podcast did about a month or two ago about uh, his book and documentary, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. So I'm very grateful for the probably canceled podcast folks who continuously put out incredibly revolutionary and inspiring work that teaches me and others so much about so many things. So 
thanks again to Bridget and the other folks over at Probably Cancelled, and thanks again to Chuck, to John for uh, coming on the show. I also have been plugging for a while and been trying to get uh, an episode put together with uh, Luna Oi, so hopefully that'll come up soon, and there's plenty of other guests who I'm trying to get on. Um, I mentioned uh, in a few episodes uh, prior that one of the most important things that we can be doing, and this is really the central theme of my conversation with Elena, is building relationships. Now, sending emails might seem disingenuous, but if you have the time and the capacity to type a lot of the same shit to a lot of different people, I personally can get about 20 to 30 emails out a day, usually, if I'm actively attempting to make contact with people. Of those 20 to 30, I maybe in, say, six months' time, hear back from about half for a lot of different reasons. One thing I'm finding is a lot of the groups that I want to get in contact with outside of the United States, my email will not allow me to reach them. So I think I need to get a new email account with a different uh, provider. But um, yeah, it'll say like server non-accessible. Like I tried to reach out to folks in uh, Pakistan who were talking about where uh, the... Uh, school was raided and students were kidnapped. Uh, there was a journalist organization that had done a write-up that People's Dispatch talked to. And when I emailed their email account that's on their website, my email told me that I could not access that server. So if anyone knows what the fuck that means, hit me up because I know absolutely nothing about technology. But hey, There's phone numbers, too. There's social media accounts. There's addresses on a lot of these places. And sure, I can't fly to Pakistan, but I might be able to, you know, I don't know. If I can't get them on the email, if I can't call them, there's other ways. There's other people who can help connect me who, you know, if I can get connected with people's dispatch, they can help connect me to them. So there you go, you know. But I have really been struggling myself with, you know, I, I spend a lot of time trying to learn about everything that's going on so that I can kind of like take what consciousness I've developed and kind of feed new information into it, essentially like testing a hypothesis, like looking at the ongoing developments such as the coup in Burkina Faso, the coup in Mali, the march of millions in Sudan, the resistance of Israeli occupation in Palestine, the ongoing resistance of the Wet'suwet'en up in what we call British Columbia, the ongoing movements in Honduras such as the Libre Party and the new president Giomara Castro, who we need to be giving our full and undying support to, as well as to the people, the 1.7 million who decided for themselves, not for anyone else and not by anyone else, that they want 
the Castro administration and the Libre Party to lead them through to a new world, a post-coup reality. For those of you who don't know, Xiomara Castro, her husband was the president when the coup happened under Barack Obama, overthrowing the democratically elected representatives. Um, In Venezuela and Bolivia and Nicaragua, there has been incredible developments. Nicolas Maduro has uh, spoken in solidarity with Xiomara Castro and been able to rekindle uh, ties and communal relations between the two nations. You see countries like Nicaragua becoming a part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which shows an incredible amount of international solidarity uh, that really is just not founded, not uh, able to be found within the capitalist and imperialist system that we live in here in the United States. It's really quite evident that, in fact, we do not have any sort of international solidarity between the government of the United States of America and the self-determining socialist and popular Uh, governments across the world. Countries like Iran, which of course many would say is not socialist, and they would be right, is in fact one of the most, uh, you know, counter-hegemonic powers in the region against the United States in a way that is internationalist in scope. The uh, oil company, Hezbollah, delivered fuel and gas to countries all over the world that have been put under sanctions illegally. Illegally. We keep forgetting that. Illegally. I know when we recognize that the legal code is only meant to keep us in place and not the ruling class, we stop kind of discussing this, but people have to understand that these sanctions are illegal according to international law, and yet The United Nations, NATO, and the international courts allow the United States to continuously destroy, blockade, and starve millions of people across the world. We can't forget that. But the developments also in places like the Philippines, where the Maoists and the, uh, you know, active... uh, Uh, communist parties throughout the country are building a quite, you know, revolutionary front against the abuses of the Duterte administration, against the abuses of the Philippines' own war on drugs, which smells and looks a lot like Ronald Reagan's and Richard Nixon's and the U.S. government's own war on drugs. We also see incredible, I mean, you got I think it was 60,000 in-home care workers in India who, by all intents and purposes, are considered indentured domestic slaves, went on strike. And in those strikes, in those crowds of thousands of people, you see hammer and sickles flying everywhere. 
big red flags, big big red clothes even, signs demanding power to the people, justice, economic equality, and egalitarianism. In places like... Sorry, I just had a brain fart. In places like, you know, right now we are seeing in uh, Ukraine and Russia, as well as the South China Sea, the United States Empire is, uh, is militarizing, right? We can put it simply. But it is doing so with a purpose. Because what it'll tell you is that these groups of people, these governments are evil, they're totalitarian, they're dictatorships, they are anti-America, anti-democracy. But ask yourself, really, what does it mean to be anti-America? You mean anti-systemic racism? Anti-patriarchy? anti-imperialism and anti-empire then yes a lot of these governments a lot of these people are anti-America when we say that they are anti-democratic this word democracy democratic loses all meaning because what it is actually meant to be understood as is democracy for the few who claim that they are the bastions of democracy. No one is checking the United States and going, hey, wait a minute here. You guys aren't very democratic. At least no one who is, you know, able to remove the United States Empire as a threat at this moment. Not yet, at least. So, yes, countries like Russia, countries like Iran, countries like Bolivia, Cuba, Nicaragua, the United States will call them many things. But we must understand in which context we are hearing these words. Lenin says it quite clearly, a communist will never forget to ask, democracy for who? We know that this democracy here in the United States, across Western Europe and the world, only exists for the powerful, wealthy, ruling class. And we know that democracy under the capitalist and imperialist system is no different than the supposed democracy that existed on Turtle Island while chattel slavery and indigenous genocide were active policies of local, state, and federal governments where democracy was flown high in front of the starving enslaved Indians by the British Empire, where democracy was used as a tool 
of oppression, of enslavement, and of exploitation, we know that there is no such thing as democracy for anyone except the slave owners, whether they go by that name now or not. It must be understood, there is no democracy on Turtle Island. There is no democracy under capitalism and imperialism. So, in following with this, if the United States, right, is not, as it claims, a democratic country, what is it? What kind of government exists under a capitalist and imperialist system? First, before we can really answer that conclusively, we have to analyze the ways in which the state what we must understand, the government, the police department, the military, the media, the education system, the schools, the private prisons, all of this must be understood as what we call the state. The state is an organized bureaucracy as uh, one... um, Oh shit, I can't think of their fucking name. It's a rap group, I can't think of their name. And one of their songs starts with this uh, speech and I've been trying for a long time to figure out who it is and he's, he's like, the state is this organized bureaucracy. It is the police department, it is the army, the navy, it is the courts and what have you. And this state, it is a repressive state. And, and then he goes, oh, and you know, you got to have the police because if it wasn't for the police, you look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. You'd be killing yourselves. And then he goes, but the truth of the matter is that the police only become necessary at a certain point in society when the things are split between those who have and those who have not. And then the opening line of the song is, I throw a Molotov cocktail at the precinct, you know how we think. Organize the hood under our chain banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas, FBI spying on us through radio antennas. antennas. Such a good song. Anyways, (laughs) as you can tell, I mean, this is why I decided we're going to start calling it the morning commute because... It doesn't always end up being really important. And most of the time, honestly, you folks obviously don't know this, but most of the time, I don't even end up posting these episodes. I record almost every single fucking day, but it ends up either being, A, one of the same fucking episodes, or or totally unimportant that by the time I go back and listen to it, I'm like, yeah, no, this is stupid. I shouldn't post this. So, anyways, (laughs) if you just heard me, uh, you know, open... (laughs) With the line from Police State by, uh, oh Jesus, here we go again, forgetting the fucking name. 
Here we are. Hold on, hold on. Dead Prez. Jesus Christ, that was going to bother me all day if I didn't remember. Yeah, so if you just heard that, then you know that somehow or another this episode ended up making it past that cut. But, (laughs) yeah, so essentially we have a organized system, which Lenin and many others called the organized tool of violence by one class against the other. That is what the state is under capitalism and imperialism, as well as under feudalism and under all forms of class society. The state under the scientific socialist dictatorship of the proletariat is not necessarily a non-repressive force. It is a repressive force that is used and wielded by the working and exploited majority of people themselves rather than a wealthy, privileged, and powerful minority of the population. I'm talking, for example, less than a thousand people here in the United States really own and control the means of production. So rather than having a thousand people rule over 350 million, you have 350 million people who are actively participating, administrating, and running the state themselves in a way that eliminates the necessity for a state apparatus in general, and it eventually just becomes the people's administration of society. Rather than having a government that controls people, you have people who administrate a government. It's almost like, you know how if you have all your paperwork and shit that you got to do, say, um, I don't know, it's tax season or you've immigrated to a country and you have to do all your paperwork, right? Essentially, figure in the fact that instead of doing that for yourself, you might be doing it so that your local area can know how much food stock it has and you can connect with surrounding areas to try to provide like surplus food to people who need it. Rather than having a private corporation who pays a representative to slowly but surely, you know, cut the, the, the littlest bit off the top of what social spending we have in our area for, uh, you know, uh, things like food subsidies uh, so that uh, private corporations and stores and chains can come in and, you know, develop their own economy which benefits themselves only and leaves people who don't have the funds to provide themselves with that food out of a meal. So look at it in this way rather than understanding the state as the government as it exists now. The state is a tool. The state is a philosophical con- like a concept that took material reality at a certain point when, as, you know, that opening line to uh, Dead Prez's song says, when society splits into the haves and the have-nots, when class society, the oppression and exploitation of one part of the society, one class by another class, 
necessitates an apparatus that is able to maintain that relationship and that oppression against any and all forms of resistance. That is the state under capitalism and imperialism. But when the basis of society is not founded on the exploitation of billions of people for the benefits of thousands, then that relationship, that state is no longer necessary. And what we might consider the state ceases to exist. But an apparatus of, you know, maintaining control is still necessary for the safety of the billions of people across the world. How will food get to places? How will we develop climate change technology? How will we know how to, you know, build uh, cities and bridges and dams that are so necessary here and how to get the people and the engineers there and how to pay them well so that those things are developed properly so unlike in Pittsburgh, they do not just crumble. The only way that we can do that is through a centralized and conscious organization of the people. And if that is what we call a state, then we have to understand the clear distinction between the two. But what government is the United States? Is the government a state of repression by the many over the few? Or is it a state of repression by the few over the many? You answer. Once you find your answer, tell me this. What kind of government have we been told our whole lives allows for no other line, allows for no other ideology, allows for no other representation? What kind of government miseducates and misinforms its people intentionally to support its own status quo. What kind of government puts those who resist in private chambers and cells to be tortured, to be starved, to be abused, to be dehumanized, and to be left alone and away from their family, from humanity? And what kind of government makes billions off of warring with and exploiting billions of people across the world. You tell me what kind of government that is. To George Jackson, Huey P. Newton, and plenty of others, including Clyde Bellancourt, um, it was clear that this government was an oppressive one and could not be allowed to continue. This government, to me, is a fascist dictatorship of capitalist and imperialist interests only. Now, I would like to say here, I don't quite care about your definition of fascism. My definition of fascism comes from George Jackson. My definition of fascism is reform. Because the United States has developed the most advanced and the most controlled forms of reformation that has come to materialize and 
envelop, co-opt, and capture the masses, the media, and the power more than any other nation state to this day. The United States of America with three K's is a fascist dictatorship. George Jackson says in his Blood in My Eye that if we are basing our analysis of fascism on the two characteristics that are most agreed upon by communists and non-communists, that fascism is a anti-labor and anti-class form of repression, and that fascism is capitalist in nature. These two characteristics alone, as George Jackson says explicitly, these two factors alone are enough to indict the United States government as a fascist, uh, he calls it a, a fascist corporatist state. The ways in which the capitalist and imperialist powers have been able to take hold of just about any and all capital, labor forces, markets, um, militaries, private contracting companies, private prisons, private uh, immigration uh, companies, as well as power itself, as in being that a majority of the representatives in power, since in really most estimates, the very day that Europeans set foot in the Americas, it was clear beyond a reasonable doubt, even in their own courts, even based on their own definitions, this nation was a fascist state. What do we normally know as a fascist state? We know it as, uh, you know, a country or a government that only allows for one party rule that controls the media, the military, the schooling system, even things down to, as we saw with the Hitler youth programs, and the children's fascist programs in Italy and Spain. It even takes hold of your life, of your day-to-day -day habits. It takes control of your mind. What else can we call patriotism and nationalism here within the United States except for this? But there is one uh, caveat I will make, and George Jackson makes this, so I, I don't want to be wrong, <laughs> and so I want to stress this. We might consider 
throwing away or at least reanalyzing this part about one-party rule. Because when we oftentimes hear the definition of totalitarianism, we are hearing it defined by imperialists and capitalists. Merriam-Webster, right? The people who wrote these definitions were anti-communist, anti-socialist. And so the definitions were clearly defined with an intention to direct ideology against these forms of popular government. Now, if this sounds crazy conspiratorial, I mean, okay, <laughs> like, I kind of sometimes get a little self-conscious that, like, oh, if someone doesn't 100% get on track with you, like, they're going to think you're fucking crazy. But as we know, I mean, such is, such is the path for most Marxists and anarchists and such. But anyways, jumping away from that tangent here, I think that that huge fucking march that just took place in New York City with all the NYPD officers marching, if y'all didn't see that, check that out. It's all over Instagram and Twitter. It's fucking terrifying, uh, first of all. Second of all, um, if that does not look like a fucking fascist police state to you, I don't know what the fuck will. So at this point, I'm done discussing with people what character the United States government is. It's a fascist dictatorship. If you can't align with me on that point, we aren't going to align on much else. Because to me, a fascist dictatorship has one and, on, one and only one solution. And that is death. Death for the millions of people who were never given the opportunity to even live their own happy and healthy life. We each get to live life one time, one time. And you have billions with a B of people suffering. And I'm not talking, I'm not talking lightly. I'm not talking lightly. I'm talking right now, the people of Afghanistan, because the United States refuses, absolutely refuses to release the funds which they have stolen from the people of Afghanistan. Are The people are going to die. They are going to die. Children, women, elderly, disabled, who have never lived a day in their life confident that they will eat that they will drink clean water, that they will make it to tomorrow. 
and the government of our country did that through many ways. They did not do it alone. They did it with the help of every terrorist group, every resistance organization, every religious extremist uh, coalition that they could find. Who would shoot and kill on command of a dollar is the United States friend. Mujahideen were celebrated in America throughout the 80s. And now we call them Al-Qaeda. And we go across the world killing millions, millions of people whose skin and whose voices do not or are not found to be of the liking of the U.S. military. And so for that, the U.S. military is allowed to decide that these people do not deserve life. And here we sit in the United States of America, and we argue about whether or not it is a fascist state. Not only do we argue, around and we fill our fucking faces. We are gluttons. We complain, yet do nothing. We argue, do not learn. Demand change, yet do not take serious or concrete steps towards putting the pressure on the people who it is necessary to put pressure on to actually expect material change. Who are we kidding ourselves with this bullshit about folks like Bernie Sanders and AOC? The world is on fucking fire. You wanna tell me that someone who years after the Cochabamba agreements were written, signed and demanded to be put in action, writes a, quote, Green New Deal, heavily based on the idea that giving millions of dollars in tax subsidies to huge, huge technology corporations and weapons manufacturing plants is more intelligent than simply getting the fuck out of the way of indigenous people and building a new world today. Who are we kidding, folks? We don't need to be wasting time on this shit. We really don't need anything more than the willingness to act, the theory to know how, and the numbers to win, and the confidence that we can do so. I am here to tell you that we can and must have those things. There is no shortage of inspiration today. 
when looking into the global south, we see movements that are standing against giants and winning. Winning time and time again. I again bring up Diomara Castro and the Honduran people. I bring up again Hezbollah and the Iranian people. I bring up again Movimiento al Socialismo, Evo Morales, Luis Arce, and the Bolivian people, indigenous and non-indigenous. I also bring up again the Sandinistas and their revolution, the Cubans and their revolution, the Chinese and their revolution. My friends, the largest country in the world, India, is in such dire straits. Countries like Kenya, South Africa, plenty of others across the global south. Everywhere you turn, you see hammers and sickles. You see people with guns. You also see people giving out vaccine, giving out food, giving out clothing. See groups like the Shack Dwellers Movement and the MST in uh, South Africa and Brazil, respectively, building whole communities in the face of the empires, in the face of the ruling class that refuses refuses in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of the sixth mass extinction, in the middle of economic crisis like never before seen except for, oh wait, like 10 times in the last 10 years. Who are not unable, but instead unwilling to do anything that will actually put an end to the issues, the contradictions, and the struggles facing billions of people across the world. What other kind of government than a fascist one can be said to be so incredibly committed to capitalism, to putting down each and every form of resistance, and to attacking socialism and communism at every turn, while also having no clue and no clear definition on what either of those two are. Masks are communism, right? Vaccines are socialism. The newest and final variant will be Marxism. These are all incredible slogans that have been on signs at multiple rallies 
across the United States. I know it's all a ha-ha funny joke because it's a meme and these people are oh so stupid. But how many of those people are your family members? How many of those people are your friends? How many of those people were you just a few years ago? And how many of those people are actually coming to those conclusions on their own? How many people are actually deciding these things for themselves and not being misled, controlled, exploited, and oppressed just as you and I are? Not many. There are some, sure, but not many. We have a responsibility, my friends. We live within the belly of the beast. This is the U.S. empire. You want to call yourself a fucking socialist? Do I want to call myself a fucking communist? Do we want to talk about revolution in a book? Or do we want to build it? It doesn't mean that books aren't useful. Books are one of the most important tools to being able to build a revolution. You got to know what the fuck you're building. You got to look at the how-to manual first. And not for nothing. That's the cool thing about theory and history. We don't got to make the same fucking mistakes. We don't got to do the same shit. Because guess what? There's a book about it. And if we read it, we can learn. But more importantly, if we read it, we talk to other people about it, and we apply those lessons, we can learn new ones. And learning lessons is what I'm about. And learning lessons is 100% what the capitalist and imperialist fascist police state known to the world as the United States of America deserves. And that's what they will get. Thank you so much for listening, folks. I hope you enjoyed the episode. This was the very first episode of the morning commute with In Defense of Liberation. That is me, Josh. So if you like the show, please go ahead and reach out however you can. But more importantly, please get organized. Thank you for listening, folks. Stay happy, stay healthy, and stay revolutionary. We'll see you next time.